Nicholas Rintorf is a physician scientist and one of the pioneers in decentralized healthcare and life sciences. He has an MD from Heidelberg University and he received his master's degree in biomedical informatics from Harvard Medical School as a Fulbright Scholar. He's also the founder of LabDAO, an online community of life scientists collaborating to increase the accessibility of life science tools both in dry and wet labs. He's also a core member of VitaDAO, a collective funding early stage longevity research. DAOs are decentralized autonomous organizations and a staple of the ongoing Web3 revolution. DAOs have no central governing body. Every member within a DAO typically shares a common goal and attempts to act in the best interest of the entity. Popularized through cryptocurrency enthusiasts and blockchain technology, DAOs are used to make decisions in a bottom-up management approach. Or as Nicholas describes them, DAOs are basically WhatsApp group chats with an attached cryptocurrency bank account. In this conversation, I find out about how DAOs can be used in healthcare, from enabling rare disease research to fixing science's publishing problems. I hope you enjoy. So Nicholas, in really basic explain like I'm five type terms, could you explain what decentralized science is? And then could that maybe lead on to what a DAO is as well? Yeah, absolutely. So decentralized science is an extension of open science. Open science is the idea that the outputs that come out of a research project should be available to everybody. So the, the whole paper should be re readable by everybody and you should have access to the primary data. That's open science. Um, and then decentralized science is one layer built on top of that, which says, okay, now not only can you read, but you can also write and execute. You can, uh, you can actually also now raise funding for your scientific project online and everybody can do that and also you can use that funding that you've raised online and deploy it online as well so basically pay another colleague uh, so they can help you on that research project or um, pay a laboratory so that laboratory does a particular experiment for you and reports the data back so it's really i think an extension of open science and where does a DAO fit into that so a DAO just as a definition, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. A DAO is just the native fo form in which um, people can organize um, on, on chain on, in the internet. So we all know WhatsApp group chats, we all know Facebook group chats. Um, a DAO is literally just that, with everybody in that group chat having control over a shared crypto bank account. And just think about that, in, if, you, if you had a Facebook group chat and you had to have an actual bank account, it would be really hard to make sure that the interests and the, all the different parties that, that are in that group chat have control over that bank account and, and there can be, there's no like disconnect between the interests of that group and uh, the way that money of that bank account was spent. Now with these Web3 primitives, it's relatively uh, achievable to make sure that this community can make decisions and actually the funds are, are spent in a way that reflects the interests of their group chat. So a DAO is like a WhatsApp group chat with a bank account um, and there's some mechanism by which the interests of the group can be put forward and not just the interests of a few of the leaders of the group. How can you apply that to healthcare? Are there any kind of interesting uh, problems you can tackle? I, I think there's so many. Um, the, the one I'm currently focusing on is, I think, one of the, the first ones we have to solve, uh, which is um, basically build DAOs, build small organizational units for scientists to collaborate. And so what we're seeing right now is 
I'm a scientist and I have an idea and I'm looking for a collaborator. And we actually have this happening within our community right now, which is exciting. Um, there's a scientist, they have uh, a paper that's almost finished, but there's just one more analysis that they want to do. Um, and they don't have the, the capacity within their direct ecosystem. So they post about their interest. And suddenly someone comes along, another scientist comes along and says, hey, yeah, I can analyze your immunofluorescent images or, hey, I can run an in silico docking so basically check whether your small molecule is binding a protein or not um and and then they get into a group chat and then they work together and um yes they need a shared bank account because a lot of scientists come together and um you know this time the, the scientists put in it costs some amount of money so someone needs to pay for it if it, ideally um, over time, we will be able to just raise um, nonprofit funding grants into these communities so they can just have these virtual laboratories where they work together. And then also the IP that is generated is captured within those labs. And the, the contributions that everybody is making are tracked in through token-based token -based mechanisms. So instead of having an author list that is just one one array, you have a whole network graph of like token balances, who has who has how much uh, sort of ownership in that particular project and um, how did they interact with each other. Now, that is currently what I'm focused on in terms of like DAOs and making scientists operate really well together. Um, other, other DAOs that are currently emerging in this space, and I'm sort of still talking about science, but we'll get to healthcare soon enough, um, are, are funding DAOs. So you have a group of people that really care about research on particular disease, they can come together online in such a group chat as well, and they pool their funding, they might raise some additional funding, and then they can use that funding um, to make decisions about what scientists to sponsor um, and other capital allocation decisions. And I think that is just scratching the surface of what we can do. Um, other examples that I can that I can see, and we're we're not there yet, but I, I think we'll we'll get there relatively soon, is that patient interest DAOs where, for example, patients that have a rare disease come together, which is basically just a, a, a form of the DAO that I described previously with these research funding interests, or patients actually themselves come together and say, okay, we want to fund, fund, sponsor the research into our own disease or the, into the disease that our, our loved ones have. And there are some companies that support the emergence of these groups right now. And then I, th I think sort of last step in that evolutionary uh, tree could be um, data commons. What I mean with that is that every patient has a record, every patient has data that they have access to. And, and there have been some projects in the past, like Count Me In, that was uh, run by the Broad Institute, where patients would um, talk to their local pathologist and ask the pathologist to send a sample to the Broad Institute um, so the Broad Institute could go and take the sample and sequence the DNA and, and, and do the analysis. And, and that project was quite a success. There was a whole active online community, and then the data was, uh, uh, was analyzed by one institute and, and was shared globally. And I think you could have something similar where instead of one institute doing the analysis, it would be an online group of patients that would come together and they would all ask their practitioners for their healthcare data, then they would all pool it together and uh, they would govern that pool of data together. And, and then they would work together with scientists, let them analyze their data, um, potentially have some ownership in the results that come out of that scientific uh, process, potentially give access to for-profit entities as well, take some capital in return, distribute that among the patients that have brought their data together. I think that's going to be um, 
quite a quite a common pattern in the next coming years where patients basically take their data um, pull it together so it's interesting and valuable and then they they find ways to to um, control it but also um, get some get some financial returns from it so if we talk about a research DAO, is there anyone actually in charge of that Yes, um, actually, that's that's something you learn the very hard way when you when you explore this space. Is that this is not all free flowing and structureless. In fact, um, it it only works if there is a certain amount of structure and if you have something like a, a, a leadership structure within these organizations. So, a lot of the lessons that we know about how humans interact with each other from the last hundreds, thousands of years is still valid in these online groups. So you want to have stewards that um, have more investment in the in the success of the group, that have more subject matter expertise, that can guide the community and its decision making for sure. And groups that don't have that, um, they very quickly figure out that they need to set up some kind of structure or they they usually go very, become very inactive quickly. Is there something by which there is some kind of democratic vote, or is that does that depend from DAO to DAO in terms of how it's structured? For example, in the research DAO or in a funding DAO, the members would have some kind of say in in where the money goes or where the research effort goes. Right, right, um, and and these decision making tools they are still being actively developed and they're still far from perfect. Um, right now, the most common tool that people use to do any type of voting is token-based voting. But what token-based voting means is that everybody who owns a token that you know, serves as a governance tokens to that particular group chat, to that particular DAO, um, has one vote. That also means that a person that has a lot of these tokens has a lot of votes, and a person that just joined and just has one token has only one vote. So you have it's not very democratic in that t- setup. It's it's one token, one vote, and a lot of a lot of people in the field have criticized that system um, for the right reasons because you you obviously can have these like like imbalances of power. Now, other methods that have been explored are uh, one person, one vote. That is that strikes us as the most democratic approach you can take, and and um, that's, however, surprisingly hard to implement. Um, and the reason for that is when you're online, what is stopping you from just creating 20 accounts and basically having 20 votes? And, and so that attack is called a Sybil attack. You create multiple accounts and you impersonate multiple participants. How do you make sure that you're? It's just you know, there's really just one person and not 20 people that are being controlled. And uh, there are now more and more tools being developed and, and groups, you know, focusing their resources on solving that problem. Um, and, and I think I'm pretty optimistic we'll get to a point where we can have these more democratic systems to make decisions. The other thing I wanted to pick up on, and like, I appreciate that you're not an IP lawyer, but this whole concept of how in a research style, for example, you have some output and something comes out of it. And then you were mentioning that you all share in that and everyone who's contributed gets some proportion of that. I mean, how does that actually work? Like, so say in the example that you've developed some kind of pharmaceutical, because I know about this concept of IP NFTs and I just wanted to kind of get your take on that. Right. And, and first I have to say a lot of what I'm about to say is theory that hasn't yet been pressure tested. We have done um, within VitaDAO, we have done a, a set of these uh, agreements and we have minted a set of these IP NFTs, but, but yet we haven't seen a situation where um, 
for example, a biotech company emerged around that IP and there was any situation where we had to really think about, you know, how do we how do we create um, sort of a, a returning cash flow coming out of these IP entities? So that's that's the first thing to, to I guess, put out there in all fairness. Now, the way that it works in theory is that you can have a group of researchers that's does work and and that can happen either within traditional organization or that can happen um, outside of traditional organizations and when they eventually make a make a discovery then you either if it was in a, within the traditional institutions and let's focus on that example for now um, then you you previously when you went ahead and you funded their research you did a sponsored research agreement with the university tech transfer offices that allowed you to basically capture some of the IP and get an exclusive license um, f- for that for that IP that emerged within that research project. Now, that exclusive license is with a company, is with a service provider company that made that agreement with the university. The university usually does not do legal agreements with online group chats. That's We're not there yet. <laughs> That's not going to happen anytime soon. But there are companies that are willing to do agreements with online group chats and with university tech transfer offices. And uh, so these companies such as Molecule, they, they, they do make this agreement um, and then they have the exclusive license to that particular piece of research. Now what they can do, and that's part of the agreement, is that it's, an, it's a transferable sub-license that they can have. And, and then they go ahead and they mint an NFT basically, and, and they say whoever owns that NFT has the transferable license to that to that exclusive license. Um, so that is basically the whole magic. Um, you, you have a transferable exclusive sublicense where there's one real world entity that holds that has the actual contract with the university, and they emit a token that represents that ownership. It's very similar to um, some of the innovation that's happening with uh, token-based carbon credits, where it's also one company that's holding the actual carbon credits that are issued by traditional organizations and is then emitting a token that represents that physical like carbon credit document, that traditional carbon credit document. Now, with these IP NFTs, you can then uh, basically have something that's more marketable and it can be purchased by other by other people. And eventually, the hope is that um, enough... Inter- information that is accumulated such that there is a strong case to make to actually launch a company, for example, around that IP. And then um, that that token would be burned, the, the actual license would be transferred into that company, and, and people would would work with, it, with that company to, to actually turn that technolo- technology into a marketable product. Now, how do you actually give the people that helped do that research how do you give them participation? Now, this is where we get into the scenario where the research would happen outside of the institutions. And that's what I care a lot about with LabDAO is I think that we, if we provide the laboratory capacity for scientists to be working online, a lot of science could also happen um, outside of the existing institutions. And uh, w- within that context, the one way that we're currently thinking about it is that we want to track contributions within this lab within this group chat of scientists that do the work um, through these uh, through peer-to-peer basically feedback mechanisms where after every month people give each other feedback, how much did you contribute to the success of this project? And then eventually, um, if there is some kind of IP, we would then also capture that IP using the existing legal infrastructure. So you would file a patent, we, the, the, uh, the DAO has a legal representation 
And that entity could then uh, file a patent for that group of scientists that could be a dedicated entity that then set, is set up that represents that particular group of scientists. And then that particular group of scientists, the people that really would be interested in following that journey further, um, they could then be the founding team of, of a company that might emerge out of that. Or if they're really not that interested in you know, building a company, they just want to keep doing science, that's great as well. Um, then we can find a way to give them um, some kind of, you know, inventor sh uh, revenue share agreement, just the same way that institutions do this as well with their inventors. And in a similar light, if there was some kind of um, funding DAO and I had put £10,000 in to fund a certain type of research and that results in a blockbuster drug coming out of it, is the concept that then I would be gifted some kind of tokens and then that would have some link to the... Um, the value created by the drug and then i would be recompensated that way or like how how would that work exactly no that, that's not how it works um that would be a security right there's no this the token is purely a governance token there's no dividend that's ever going to be paid out so rather if you contribute to such a funding DAO, you're can basically can you are committing capital in return you get governance rights in and something that you can probably most accurately described as an endowment. So now there, there's this pool of funds that this online group can allocate and can enable science. And yes, that group will capture some IP, and, but then it will probably sell that IP into a, into a company that develops out of that pool of IP or um, to another funding organization. And yes, that will be a liquidity event for the DAO, but it will not be a liquidity event for, for you. You will, however, likely see uh, a set of a set of scenarios. Um, there's one scenario, and there's actually just a piece that was written about this. Um, it's called hyperstructures. We can share that maybe in the show notes, um, where, where where people have been thinking about well, with these online protocols and online communities, um, how will value accrue if there is no cash flow back to the people that actually you know hold the governance tokens? And and one model that I potentially that I tend to use is um, if you have something that starts out as a relatively small community, but then matures into an institution, which is really what it is, an institution that is as large as um, what, like a research university that you know from the UK or the US, um, then, then control over that research university will, ha will have a monetary value that is larger than control over a smaller project that just started out. So I think, that, again, I cannot make any projections about future value development, but it, I think if, if you have functioning research institutions, if you have functioning funding organizations, um, they're, they're, the value will will appreciate. And uh, if you, you need 51% of the tokens to control the, the direction of those institutions, so so the token value will probably correlate with that. But again, I cannot I cannot make any clear statements there. In the event that essentially there's some kind of research that I support and I want to put some money towards it, um, what kind of incentives are there for me to do that if there isn't that clear um, money coming back in the liquidity event that we discussed? Like, is it out of the goodness of my heart? Yeah, so, so basically that is something you would, you would probably want to do primarily out of your goodness of your heart because you really care about that research. And yes, there might be this sort of secondary motive of saying, okay, I, I believed in this science funding organization. 
relatively early, and um, then potentially that organization has a lot of makes a lot of good funding decisions, and uh, the value of that organization increases. But there's no future cash flow coming back to me because I didn't I didn't purchase a security. Right, this is not a security. Now there are other cases. There are other DAOs. Um, popular examples are the Lao or um, Spaceship DAO and other sort of investment DAOs, and they they have a bit more legal clarity, you need to be an accredited investor to participate in these. And, and there it's very clear, okay, if I participate, then then I have future then I have future cash flows in the case of a liquidity event. Um, participating in these is, is a is a different is a different ball game. Um, you need to be accredited and then you basically you do you do basically seed investment together. And um, in that case you will probably not you know, specialize in, in funding scientists, you, you might want to go into, you know, seed and pre-seed investment in biotech companies, because otherwise your your risk return profile is probably not uh, that stable. Okay, I've got you. Um, I had a few examples written down of areas that I thought are problems in science. And I just wanted to spitball with you a bit and get your thoughts. Uh, and we've mentioned a couple of these already, but how DAOs or even decentralized science in general could tackle some of these issues. And the first one was rare disease research. So the problem is that there's 9,000 rare diseases. Not many of them have cures or treatments or even research interest into them. How would a group of rare disease patients go towards tackling some of those issues using these approaches? Yeah, so... so I, I'm extremely optimistic about the potential for da- of DAOs for these rare diseases, and um, I think at this point it's probably good to bring up two companies in particular. I think Vibe Bio, um, they are really interested in, in rare diseases and, and setting up DAOs for rare diseases, um, setting up DAOs for patient groups, and then another fa- uh, entrepreneur that comes to mind is Ethan Perlstein, who has been committed to doing rare disease research for quite some time and has been looking into um, the potential of decentralized science um, as well. And now what what all of these groups have in common is the idea that patients are already coming together online. There are a lot of Facebook group chats where patients are sharing their stories and uh, the expertise that the patients collect, that collective intelligence that these online groups have is, is far exceeding the average training and competence that a, that a physician has with like even probably after finishing residency in that particular rare disease because it's so rare um, so a lot of competence and understanding is, is gathered it is concentrated in these in these online group chats however um, as I said if you have an online group chat that only gets you so far but the moment that you have a bank account that is controlled by the online group chat you can actually and change something about the physical world. And in this case, it could be advocating, not only advocating for for research in that particular rare disease, but actually allocating funding to that particular disease, sponsoring research at universities into that particular disease, uh, potentially capturing even some IP that comes out of that research from the research institutes where, where the science is happening. Um, and yeah, so, so I'm pretty optimistic about about those those type of DAOs, especially especially in rare diseases, uh, to really make a difference. And is it as, uh, I don't say easy, but is it as simple as just setting the thing up? Or it, are there certain things that need to happen in terms of um, legal governance structure, whatever? Would it be possible tomorrow, essentially? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, need to, I, need to, I need to laugh because it, 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 
there are there are multiple ways. There are people that have done these uh, type of set up a DAO relatively quickly, and um, I think there's almost a law emerging, just like the Lindy effect, where something that has already been around for some time will also last for for a longer time. And I think that's the same case with DAOs. If you have already had, if you already had an online community for quite some time, and then you decide to um, build an infrastructure in which you um, can also make funding decisions using these open source payment systems, then I think you're in a way more, way stronger position than if you overnight decide, oh yeah, I think there should be a DAO for X and then you set it up. Um, so, so that's just a general comment. I think the best DAOs have been already around for some time and just didn't know they were DAOs. Um, like Facebook groups of patients that are affected with a disease, they are de, de facto, they are already sort of patient DAOs. All, the, all that's missing is giving each of these participants some kind of vote in funding decisions that are being made and, and giving them a way to participate in the funding. Um, and the second part is on the legal side and, and how you would set it up from a legal perspective. That's something that's still very much a moving target. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to lawyers uh, and, and so are a lot of other entrepreneurs in this space because we want to we want to get this right. Yeah, we have a lot of responsibility because we're setting up we're setting up infrastructure for for science to be fa um, funded, and we want to do that in a in a responsible way. So, um, how do you navigate, um, especially a lot of regulatory um, uncertainty, um, because a lot of a lot of regulators have have not made a very clear statement how they treat certain um, instances, certain organizations. Um, so we just need to be very careful and follow follow. Also, to some extent, what we believe is, is right and, and, and an honest thing to do. And it seems like when you look at the current regulatory landscape, it would not be very wise to have a, a DAO that was only instantiated on chain, but you probably want to set up some kind of legal entity um, that gives you a real representation so that the liability of all the members of that group is limited, um, and which is one of the more common concerns around these type of online groups. There's this nice little story about jelly beans, which are a candy. And in shopping centers, they might have a big box of them with thousands of them in. And the point is that people walk past have to guess how many are in there. And no one person ever gets it right. But then they find that if they ask 100, 200 people, then the average of their answers is usually uh, quite close. And, you know, that's called wisdom of the crowds, which I'm sure you've heard of. But I wanted to ask, when you're looking at DAOs, which are looking at research decisions or, or funding decisions, do you find that having a more decentralized approach to those decisions or a more democratic approach that's spread across more people, do you find that that is resulting in better decisions being made? Or is there some wisdom in the old school hierarchical structure where there's a committee <laughs> of old experts and they make the decisions? Yeah, I think the jury is still out. On this, and 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 we will the, the history books will have still have to be written. I think there because what you described is the wisdom of the crowds, but there also is the madness of the masses, um, and where where a lot of people you know have have group behavior that is somewhat detached from reality. And um, one anecdote that I can share from Vita DAO, which is a science funding DAO, is that uh, these DAOs enable you to. One thing that they do for sure enable, which is they grow your funnel. Suddenly you have thousands of eyes on the ecosystem. You have thousands of enthusiasts that say, hey, have you looked at this? Oh, here is a scientist doing this project. 
Um, so suddenly you have a lot of more awareness of the ecosystem and it, it is a social network. Um, a lot more activity is visible, is within the consciousness of this group. However, taking that, taking all that visibility and turning it into good fun, scientific funding decisions, that's, that's the second step. Um, and, and yeah, the jury is still out. We've made, we've made a set of funding decisions with InvitaDAO. I think, um, I think a lot of them were, were good decisions, um, but it's still, it's still obviously in, not yet clear whether we were right or not. Um, but what I can share is that the decision-making process is actually less democratic than it might sound uh, from the outside. There's a funnel, and then there's a review group, people that volunteer to review um, the funding proposals. Um, then they give, their, they give their feedback. We collect at least three of those reviews from three independent contributors that have a certain level of subject matter expertise. So they might be a grad student, they might be a postdoc, they might be a professor in that particular area. Um, then you take that information and, and then there's a group call every Friday where you have um, those scientists, but also people that um, have worked in venture capital or have worked in biotech. And we see, look at these proposals um, and then we make a funding decision based on, based on the, the collective intelligence. Now, again, we, we still have to see whether that's a better way to make decisions or not. Something that I can say, however, from a theoretical perspective is that um, I think the internet is, an is a tool for collective intelligence, um, but we need to structure it in a good, in a good way. And there's, there are examples where um, building tools for collective intelligence online failed miserably, and there are tools where it worked relatively well. And, and the two examples that come to mind is um, there were these two important chess games, Kasparov versus the world versus Karpov versus the world. Um, so in both cases, you had an online forum, and th those were games that happened like in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it's quite, quite like some time ago. But in both cases, you had a, a chess master play against an online forum, and the online forum had to decide on what move to do next. Um, and in both cases, the chess masters won, but in one case, it was actually way, way more difficult than anybody had expected. And in the case where it was way more difficult than anybody had expected, um, there was a structure in, uh, set up that predisposed for good decision making. A, the time from information was available to the decision was made was larger than in the, in the example where it failed. So the, t the group had a bit more time to think through and discuss. That's the one thing. The second thing is they had stewards. So they, they picked some subject matter experts. Um, and th in those cases, there were like junior chess masters, local chess masters that were stewarding the conversation, that were moderating the conversations as people were talking together. And then three, they had a discoverability of micro expertise. What that means is you might have a person that is not the best chess player in the world, but they might know a lot about that particular opening in the chess play in the chess game or that particular move. Um, and and then in that in that moment in the game, when when that particular situation is on the board, they can come in and they can perform better than like the than or at least on par with the chess master. And and if you have enough of those people and and the information is discoverable, then you can make I think extremely good decisions. Um, so I think setting up the structures for these people to come together in the right way will will make or break a lot of these funding DAOs. The other example I wanted to talk to you about was the replicability crisis in science. And I think that's been seen most in psychology, where there was a huge paper in which they tried to replicate 
a hundred of the most influential psychology studies. Um, and I think less than 40% of them from memory replicated. And I mean, there's key problems in how science is structured and, and the incentive structures in terms of people not wanting to replicate others' work. I 100% agree. I 100% think so. Um, so you know, there's this Charlie Munger quote of show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And in academic science, the incentive is publish so that you can apply for the next grant so that you can apply for the next uh, faculty position. And um, redoing someone else's work, re testing someone else's work for reproducibility is nothing that's on that list of, of financial incentives. Um, so if you can restructure the financial incentives, you can restructure the behavior and the way that people act. Um, and it's, that's, that's extremely powerful and needs to be done with great care. But I think in, in, in the sort of case of the replicability crisis, it's actually a very good idea to say, well, what if we set up a dedicated fund for people to uh, donate capital to that goes towards um, ensuring reproducibility? Um, and in, in, in some cases, we might actually need it. So, for example, in LabDAO, uh, one core element that we're building is the lab exchange. Now, the lab exchange is where a scientist is describing what experiment they want to run, but they don't have access to a physical lab. And then they can describe what they, experiment they want to run. There are certain standards that we're, that we're developing and that we hope that it will emerge more and more over time for a particular experiment. So let's say expression of a protein in E. coli. It's relatively standard operation. They, they give the they give all the information, all the parameters for that particular um, laboratory service, and then they also give a payment. And then any other lab in the world can take that, claim that offer, and can actually go and do the work and express the protein and test some, some of its properties, for example. Now, if you have an exchange already set up where scientists give instructions and then laboratories see the instructions, take on the offer and do the work, it's relatively easy to just replicate this and say, well, can two labs please do this? Can I do parallel compute? It's the same set of instructions. Can two labs do this, please? Um, and maybe I don't only need philanthropic funding to do that. Maybe that's something I actually need to do to make sure the quality of the marketplace is there. Maybe it's more of a chore that I need to do as a DAO just in order to make sure that the quality of the services that I'm offering is, is, is there. And, and now I'm getting one step now we're going one step further. Maybe it's also something that you let laboratories do when they want to join this community of laboratories that are exchanging services, where you say, well, if you want to join, can you please reproduce this example and just see whether you are able to reproduce this example? And then you can actually test the labs that are already in your community for whether they are robust, but you can also uh, use that as an onboarding test to see whether you actually want this laboratory to, to be part of this community of laboratories that is, that is offering services. So um, that's a very long way, winded way of answering your question, which is, yes, I think these economic systems we're building, they will have a fair, fair shot at um, solving some of those reproducibility problems, A, because we have new ways to engineer financial incentives, and then B, because some of the economic systems we're building, they somewhat rely on uh, reproducibility to, to be baked into the, to the way that science is being done. Uh, so we have a real financial interest in making sure that uh, these things are reproducible. That's really, really interesting. I think what, from what you've said, that solves the problem of financial incentives and maybe the onboarding 
solves another problem slightly as well. But I think the other thing is to do with just clout and prestige of being published in a prestigious journal. Are there any ways of tackling that, do you think? So there are definitely um, a lot of people thinking through alternative publishing mechanisms. And um, and I, I really think it's it's about time that we, th- we rethink the publishing ecosystem. Um, but I would say this. The whole internet is about content creation and content curation. And yes, it might be that the, the content curators and content crea- uh, curators w- um, will change th- with their brand name, but there will always be, I think, uh, there will always be strong brands of content curation and there will be less strong brands of co- content curation. And right now, the world looks works in a way where scientists submit their manuscript before publishing to, to, a, to a publisher. And then you have these content curators that have a lot of clout, like, Nature cell science, and they can they review the work, um, and then they publish it, and they generate a very profitable. Um, it's a very profitable business, and, but I, I, and I think that will change, but it won't change. I think as radical as some people might think. I think uh, I believe that we will move to a world where scientists, for example, raise their funding in, online. They they collaborate online, and then they they take their work, they, they package it, and they, they write a bioarchive preprint. So they publish the work before it is reviewed by their peers. And then it's discoverable for everybody online. And then I think they will still rely on a curator of content to discover their manuscript on the preprint server and say, wow, this is a really interesting, this is really interesting study. We should highlight this. So I don't think... I don't think nature cell and science are going to go anywhere. I think they're still going to be around. They will just have to adapt to that change where scientists will just publish their work online without asking nature cell and science for their permission. And then nature cell and science will still be the curators of that research and will still highlight it. And as a function of that, they will still have a lot of power. Um, but at least that power is somewhat limited to this in the sense that um, – science is always shared no matter no matter what it's interesting you've drawn that distinction between i suppose currently them being both gatekeepers and curators but maybe in the future the gatekeeping function will go but the curation is still very important right the the gatekeeping function comes out of a time where uh, the actual journal was it in print was paper so there was there was like a limit to how many pages you could print and yes you needed to basically gatekeep um but, but the internet has completely taken that argument out of the equation and the publishers, they, they you know, either wake up to this now or they're going to be painfully woken up in a couple of years when people are scientists en masse are just going to sidestep th- that gate. Um, and it's already happening with bioarchive and just generally the archive system where if you talk to a computer scientist or a mathematician, they don't even care about like publishers that much anymore at all they just put their stuff on archive and in in biology and life sciences and healthcare it's starting to come and gradually happen as well there was first by archive and now there's met archive as well Uh, so even even if you're uh, academics academic um, clinician you can publish your study your clinical trial your retrospective analysis your court study you can publish that on met archive today uh, you, you write the manuscript before you send it out to the Lancet. You can put it on, on Met Archive, um, and everybody in your community can see it. And then the Lancet still might reject it, but it's already out there. Everybody in the world knows who did that work. Um, and I think that's 
I think that's going to be the new normal. And then you still want to get published in The Lancet <laughs> because The Lancet is still the prime, premier content curator, but it's not the gatekeeper anymore. Look, you're clearly an extremely amazing individual, extremely smart. You speak really well. And I wanted to just ask you, have there been any habits or ways you approach problems or ways you learn or things that you do that you think have helped you get to where you are today? Oh, wow. Thank you for saying that. Um, <laughs> um, I personally just think that the people, I think it's about surrounding yourself with people that care a lot about the truth or care a lot about figuring things out rather than um, talking, uh, oh, rather than um, giving clear answers. I, I'm always afraid of people that, that have very clear very strong answers. And I always, I always try to surround myself with people that are comfortable saying, I don't know. And in science, it's relatively, it, it's great that in science, you can find a lot of people that are comfortable saying, I don't know. Um, even like some of the most impressive scientists I met, they're extremely comfortable saying, I don't know. Um, so I, I like to surround myself with people that are comfortable saying, I don't know. And then I tend to say that a lot too, or at least I try to say that a lot too. And then every, everywhere I go, just try to try to learn something from people because yeah, I don't know a lot of stuff and, and there's just so much to learn and so much to figure out. On a more micro level, are there little things that you do, your information diet, the way you consume information? Do you think there's any, anything particular on like a pragmatic level that you do? Hmm. Yeah. Um, there was, I think Mark and reason had said that in an interview a while back and, and that really struck a chord with me. He's not reading the news anymore. He's only reading books or reading journal articles or something that's posted like on Twitter, posted on Twitter and, and Twitter, I, I don't want to recommend anybody to spend more time on Twitter, <laughs> but uh, this idea of basically disintermediating what's, what's currently the, the new, the way that information is presented to me about the present and just going directly to the source, be that a scientific publication or someone uh, that has some kind of political responsibility or economic responsibility, live tweeting about it. Um, and then on the other end of that distribution, go into the look for the timeless books. Um, that's that's something that really struck with me, and, and I I still don't read enough, but um, I, I I try to spend more time on these two extreme ends of the distribution of content. The last thing I wanted to ask you was: Is there anything interesting in your information diet on these kinds of topics that you'd recommend? So, um, books podcasts, websites, newsletters, just anything that anything that springs to mind that you've been enjoying? Yeah, um, so I, I know your audience probably relatively online, so I don't need to encourage anybody to spend more time on Twitter. Um, if you, however, if you are not yet on science Twitter and if you're a scientist or if you're a healthcare provider and, you, and you're interested in research, I would encourage you to spend a bit of time there. You can definitely see some stuff happen uh, before, before it sort of has reached mainstream coverage. Um, in terms of podcasts that I enjoy a lot, um, well, now I'm really biased because I'm on your podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, th there are definitely some some people that I follow quite a bit that uh, I think have a very clear way of thinking. Um, I'm just bringing up some names. I think uh, Josh Wool from Lux Capital is, is someone who is um, both a very clear thinking investor, but also a scientist um, and, and um, 
works works a lot with scientists, so very, I think, grounded in reality. I'm active in crypto, so obviously I'm also leaning towards the work that Balaji Srinivasan is putting out, who's also um, a pretty clear thinker, somewhat provocative, uh, which you know, I think is not everybody's cup of tea. I personally enjoy it. Um, those are maybe two people that I would recommend following, but I guess it's a relatively, at this point, also mainstream recommendation. And the last thing I just wanted to ask was, you mentioned about books and going down to the real classics. Um, sorry to put you on the spot, but are there any books that come to mind in terms of real classics that have stood the test of time that you've enjoyed? Um, so there is one book um, that that I'm just recently finished, and um, I'm just currently looking up the name, so I'm not butchering it. Um, but it's called uh, Rational Decision-Making under in an, I think, Uncertain World or um, Uncertain World. It's a, it's a textbook, um, a university textbook. Um, you can only get it at, on, as a used book on Amazon. We can put the we can put the actual link into the into the show notes. Um, but but I would definitely I definitely inc- encourage people to to try to get their hands on a copy because that one seemed like the textbook that was written before Kahneman uh, made this like more popular version of it, which is Thinking Fast and Slow. So I, I would. I would encourage people that are into, for example, decision-making to take a look at that book. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And by the way, some of these episodes are now available in video format on Spotify and on YouTube. Thanks for listening.